ask you something. Have you ever stolen something? That's a little bit too quick over there. Besides that, you don't have much rhythm, so you need to... That clapping, he's been Baptist way too long. Have you ever stolen something? Taken something that doesn't belong to you and made it yours? All right, let me re-ask that. Some of you are saying, oh, I've never stolen anything, not me. I'm, I'm an upstanding, self-righteous believer. I ain't done nothing like that. All right, so have you used what we call the five-finger discount? Or have you appropriated something that belonged to someone else for your own use without asking for permission, even something as small as a pencil? See, it's not the quantity or the quality, it's the object of stealing. It's taking something that doesn't belong to you and you appropriate it for your own use. I'm convinced we do that a lot in our relationship with God. For the lives that we have are not ours, they are his. And so when we take the life that he has given us, a life that he sustains in us, and we use it and appropriate it for our own use rather than his, we rob God. I'm also convinced that our tithes and our offerings, and you knew I was going to go there at some point, that actually belong to God because 100% of all that is ours is not really ours. It belongs to God, and God has given us 100% of the resources that we have, and those resources are entrusted to us, and we are stewards of what belongs to him. And God says to us, you can have 90% and use it for yourself, but I want you to give 10% to me. And when we rob God of that 10% and appropriate it unto ourselves, we rob God. Let's take our talent, for example. Some of you could sing in the choir, and yet you do not. How about that, Brother Andy? Got that in there? I'm going to step a bunch of toes today. You have a talent, and you're appropriating that talent that God gave you only on yourself, and God says when you do that, you actually rob him. I'm convinced that most of us, 99.99%, do that in relationship to a lot of things, and we actually give no regard to those things that really belong to God. Because as a Christ follower, everything that I have belongs to him. And when I appropriate anything that is rightfully his for myself, I rob God. Let me ask you something about worship. Can we rob God of worship? To whom does worship belong? It belongs to God. Worship doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to us. Worship belongs to God. From the foundation of the universe, when God created all that we know in the universe, the universe was made to display the glory of God and to worship him. 
When man was created and when man was placed in the garden, man was placed in the garden to worship him. But in the fall, when man fell, we became depraved in our nature because of our disobedience in a thing called sin. And now in our depravity, we now take worship that is rightfully God's and we appropriate it for ourselves. That's why mankind, in our total depravity, make idols out of our own image. We are made to worship a divine being. And when we're not worshiping Jehovah God, the Lord Jesus Christ, we will worship something or someone else other than God. And what we do in here is that we worship God. And what we are to do in here is to give God the glory, the adoration, and the praise, and the worship that is rightfully his. So when I come to the place of worship, I don't ask God, God, I hope they sing songs I like today. Because when I come to the place of worship, God doesn't say to me, Charles, did you like it today? Our only concern should be, God, did you like it today? That should be our only concern. And there are people that look for churches in which they can appeal to their carnal nature. I call them entertainment churches, and they're using worship as entertainment. That's right. We are building a a, a whole culture in the church today of, of an entertainment culture, and people are flocking to churches because those churches appeal to their flesh because it's songs that I like to hear. And in those places of worship, what is being sung and what is being played, I'm convinced, is not worship at all because it is there to please man rather than God. Worship isn't worship until we, what we bring to the altar and what we bring to the place of worship pleases him. So we should come and say, Lord, what pleases you? I know people that have left certain churches to go to churches that sing only hymns because that pleases me. Well, do you think God's pleased with all the hymns? And if you had only a hymn-singing church, would that please him? If you went to a church where the preacher didn't wear jeans, I didn't have time to change today. But it fits well with the message. Because, see, we're about to combine both worship services. Wait a minute. Well, I'm sure glad they're coming over to our side. I knew it wouldn't work over there. I I just knew it. Matter of fact, I've been against it the whole time. Been doing that for how long? Four years? And we still have people griping about it. Why? They don't sing songs that we like to hear. Or they don't sing songs that we think are appropriate. I don't give a flip what you think is appropriate. All that matters is what is appropriate to God. That's all that matters. I have yet to tell Andy what to sing. I have yet to tell any worship arts pastor that I've ever served what to sing or what not to sing. And if I, as the pastor or the leader of the church, don't go to the music guy and say, well, I want you to sing this, or you sang that, or don't sing that, then I, I've hurt the leadership of the Spirit of God. Worship is not about, and it is not designed to be an evangelistic tool. There are some churches that use worship as evangelism. Well, if we sing the songs they like, they're going to come, and then we can, we can teach them Jesus. 
Well, know what? Most of the churches that do that aren't really preaching Jesus. They're preaching self-help, five-step, ten-point ways of how to do this and how to do that. They're not preaching Jesus at all. And they sing bar songs at the beginning of the service, and, and they're doing that to be attractional. And when they bring lost people into the place of worship, now they're singing songs that continue to appeal to the flesh, to the lost person, and no worship is happening at all in those places. I'm convinced of that. And the reason for that is because lost people cannot worship God. You cannot worship God until you know God. You cannot enter into the presence of the divine, triune, sovereign Lord unless you know him. And the only way to know him is through faith in Christ. Worship is not an evangelistic tool. And I hope and I pray that when we combine the services, that it's not about them and us. It's not even about a blend. I don't care if anybody else in Wichita is doing it or not. It doesn't matter. You know anything about me, you know I don't follow trends. And what most people call trends in Wichita 30 years ago were trends, and they're no longer trends in, in, in the rest of the world because the trend is already old school in other places, and they're doing different things now. It just takes a long time to get to mid-America. I know we sometimes think that we're trendy and we're not. And I'm here to talk today about things that we have, we have deliberately stolen from God and appropriated those things for ourselves, and I'm convinced that worship is one of them. And until we get a brokenness about ourselves and come to this place and say, Lord, what pleases you? That's what I want to sing. That's the worshiper I want to be. That's what I want to render to you. I don't care what purse someone wears as long as their heart is right. Jesus told the woman at the well, he said, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. Oh, and by the way, did he add, and polyester? When we combine the services, there are going to be people with tattoos all over their body. There are going to be people that are going to wear jeans. There may be some that wear jeans on the platform. The last I checked, God doesn't have a crop of polyester. He has a crop of cotton. Polyester is a man-made thing. So since when did all of a sudden polyester become God's favorite choice in wardrobe? Well, I know if they really loved God, they'd wear their best. These jeans cost me $120. Yeah, they're designer jeans. I bet that beats your polyester pants that you brought at Walmart. So what's pleasing to God more, your $10 polyester jeans or my $120 denim? Oh, I got you outbeat. Is it all about that? I mean, at some point, we have got as a church... To, to strip ourselves of this meism thing and stop co concentrating on me, myself, and I and say, Lord, what pleases you? And when people come into the place of worship, they actually meet God here. People say, well, what kind of, what kind of style of worship you got up there in Emmanuel? And I said, we got an unusual style. They said, really, what style? I said, it's Jesus style. Well, you got contemporary music? No, we don't have contemporary music. I'm not selling the church. We didn't do that over there to be attractional. We did that over there because there was a war going on in here with worship under the leadership of David Manor. And I got emails and comments from people that were unhappy 
about the way David Manor was leading us in worship. It wasn't, I didn't come to David and say, I want you to do this and this and this and this. And some of it was not pretty. And it was all about me, what I want. It was never about God, what, what is it that you want? And, and if you do lead this church, I hope and pray you go to a church where they say, you know what? You know, I was talking to a pastor the other day. We were talking about all this. He said, I had somebody visiting me this Sunday. I said, really? I said, yeah. He said, it was an unusual visit. I said, what kind of visit was? I said, well, it was a visit <laughs> where the guy right off the bat, first Sunday, he said, you know what? You did this wrong. You could do this better. You could do this better. You could do this better, this better, and this better. And I said, would you comment to him? He said, I said, sir, I said, this is probably not the church for you. His first visit, he was already giving the pastor advice about how to run his church. We're a consumer church culture. And we're guilty, I believe, of what Achan did. We're taking what belongs to God, worship, and we're appropriating it for our own selfish desires. So when do we change? The man in Achan didn't change. He refused to change, and the end result was catastrophic. Look at the text, the choice of self. Verse 1, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. What happened? Well, you see here that there's an abrupt halt to the progress of the people of God. They are quickly advancing into the promised land. They are seizing the promise that God had given them. They are faithfully obeying the Lord and they take on Jericho right off the bat. They march around it seven times on the seventh day. They shout and the walls come down and they march in and they, they, they destroy all of the population and they devote all of the, 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 the bounty to God except one man and his name is Achan. That's the problem. One man named Achan. And we're going to see how this one man named Achan begins to, to maybe he's in a place by himself. We don't know exactly where he is, but I can imagine he's in a, in a remote place by himself. No one is around him, and he's collecting the bounty that's going to be dedicated to God. And all of a sudden, he looks at it, and with that look, a desirous spirit begins to well up, and he then begins to say, I know this has been devoted to God, but I want it for myself. And that desire leads to a decision, and he places it maybe in his backpack or somewhere in his cloak, and he somehow manages to get all this stuff in there, and he makes it back to his tent, and he digs a hole in his tent, and he buries the stuff. And the delusional Achan thinks, I have gotten away with it. Nobody knows. And yet God knows. God knows. And eventually everybody else is going to know. You know why? Because you can't conceal your sin for very long. Because your sins will be discovered and they will be found out. And eventually you'll be exposed for the sinner that you are. Because the more you try to conceal and cover up, the worse it will become when it's discovered by everyone. We see then the choice of self by Achan. That choice leads to a consequence. If you notice in the text in verse 4 and 5. It says there's about 3,000 men went up there from the people and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as the Shebron and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people, notice, melted and became as water. 
Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Notice the self-reliance of Joshua and the fact that he thought that he didn't need to wait for instructions from God and he sent the, the, the spies to Ai to spy out the land like it did Jericho. And the spies came back with an incredible self-confidence and saying to, to Joshua in their report, Hey, Joshua, we don't need all of the men. All we need is about two to 3,000. That little puny little Ai up there, it's no problem. Well, it wouldn't have been a problem if God had given them the strategy. It wouldn't have been a problem if God had gone with them. It didn't matter the fact that only 3,000 probably could have overpowered Ai. But when you go with a force without God, you will always be defeated. And as long as there's sin in your camp, when you advance without God because of sin in your camp, the result will always be the same. It will be catastrophic. You will not succeed as long as there is unforgiven, unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life. And as a result of that, we see the self-destruction that takes place. Joshua sounds the, the, the marching orders and the, the army goes to 3,000 men to take this little minute, insignificant little speck of a town called Ai, thinking it's going to be a quick victory, only to be defeated by this little minute, insignificant town with these little bitty midget warriors. And they're literally running for their lives with their tail tucked between their legs, hoping that none of them die and some do die. And as they get back and report to Joshua, we see the despair that Joshua has. He is whining to God. Because of the defeat and the death of his soldiers, he is in such despair that he whines and he moans and he complains to God. Have you ever done that? Come on, have you ever done that? Now, Joshua is a mighty man of valor. He's a soldier. He's a warrior. He's a champion. He's a general. He's strong. He's been victorious. And now he's on his face before God, and he's whining and complaining. Not only that, he blames God for the defeat. Why did you bring us all the way over here to cause this defeat and this shame? It would have been better if you had left us on the other side of the Jordan in that dusty dry bowl over there than to bring us over here and bring us to this defeat. And here we see the consequences of the sin of one man. The sin of one man. You don't want to know the significance of the sin of one man and the consequences that it will cause? It's catastrophic. One sin in a marriage, one sinner in a family, unrepentant sinner, one unrepentant sinner in a small life group, one unrepentant sinner in a church, even in a country, will bring about its defeat. Just one sin in your life, in my life, can cause the progress that God wants to have in and through his people to a complete halt until that sin is dealt with. The consequence of that sin was defeat. Notice the condemnation of the, of, the, of the self, of the self-destruction. God condemns sin. God always condemns sin. God never smiles at sin. God never treats sin lightly. As a matter of fact, he treated sin so, 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 so heinously in that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for sins that he didn't commit so that our sinful condition could then be condemned because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ who once and for all defeated sin for us on the cross and through the grave. A price has to be paid when sinners sin. There's a condemnation that comes when sin happens, and this condemnation, condemnation is about to fall. Verse 13, notice it says to Joshua, get up. You know, there's a time to whine and moan and pray and complain to God, and there's a time to shut up. 
And he says to Joshua, shut up. Stop it. Stop it. But Lord, you don't. Stop it. Let me tell you why. Let me, let me expose or let me explain to you the reason why you had a defeat. And the reason why you had a defeat is because there's sin in the camp. Not only is there sin in the camp, not only did Achan sin, but because of sin in one, all of them, all of you have sinned. And he explains that the reason why they're defeated is because of sin. And then he encourages, if you notice the text, he said, consecrate yourselves. He didn't say consecrate Achan. He said consecrate yourselves. In other words, what he wants them to do, he wants Joshua and the people of God to examine their hearts and their lives. It's kind of similar to what the, what, what the psalmist said in 139. Search me, O God, and see if there's any wicked way in me. I have this song in my head that says, um, I just lost it. <laughs> it's a song in my head that says, uh, ain't my brother, ain't my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I think sometimes when we think that there's something wrong in the camp and that we're not advancing the way that God wants us to, it must be someone else's fault. And God doesn't say it's someone else's fault. He says, Joshua, I want you yourself to examine your own heart, and if you find sin, you eliminate that sin. Examine your own heart, and if there's any sin in your heart, you eliminate that sin. Why? Because I take sin seriously in your life. And you must consecrate yourself from sin. You must confess it. You must repent of it. And once you repent of it, you return back to me what you've taken from me. I don't care how small and insignificant you may think it is. Even if it's a pencil, you give it back to me. You return back to me. That's genuine repentance. He says, consecrate yourselves. And I don't know this for a fact, but I can imagine there was a time in which Joshua did an evaluation. And he probably realized, you know, Lord... There is maybe some sin in my life because he wasn't perfect. And so he consecrated himself. And the elders and the leaders consecrated themselves. But there was still sin in the camp because there was one named Achan. I ain't doing it. Not going to do it. He was a holdout. And it would have been enough to say 99.9.9% of everybody is consecrated, and we can just let that one sin of Achan go. But God says, no, you got to deal with Achan's sin because he says, I want you to expose Achan for the sinner that he is. Expose him. I think sometimes we think that what we ought to do is cover up sin. But sometimes when we, we, we allow the dysfunction of other people and we conceal or cover up sin rather than bring it forth and, and deal with it appropriately, then, then, then we're not going to be able to get right with God. And so he says, expose the sinner and the sin that he committed. And not only that, but I want you to exercise judgment. He said, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. I want you to exercise judgment on his sin. Because, you see, judgment is required. Discipline, it says in 1 Peter, must begin in the house of God. Why did they destroy all of the people of Jericho? And why do they take the, the bounty and dedicate it to God? Because they were pagans. And most of us who are righteous and those of us who belong to God say, that's right, they got what they deserved. But God knows, as he wrote through the penmanship of Simon Peter, he says, judgment must begin in the house. We can't coexist in a dysfunctional way with sin in our lives and advance into the promises of God and beat sin down. 
We've got to look in inside of our own spirits and hearts and soul and evaluate where we are and eliminate the sin that is there or we too will be exposed for the sin that is there and we will become a detriment to what God wants to do not only in our lives and our family but also through his church. There's a conviction here that goes along with all of this through the condemnation for Achan is finally convicted of his sin. Notice in verse 20 and 21. And Achan answered, Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Joshua does exactly what God tells him to do, assemble all the people there. And one by one, the people came, clan by clan, family by family, leader in the family by leader in the family, stepping up and facing Joshua and said, as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord, there's no sin. Next, and the guy next cuts that up, and next comes up, and all of a sudden, it's Achan's turn. And Achan's convicted. He knows that it's finally going to come to him. And I can imagine, can't you, him standing there in line waiting to come up to Joshua, knowing the whole time this conviction begins to set in and he can't hide it any longer. He must confess. And even though he confesses because he's convicted of sin, notice he does not ever repent in this confession. That's all it is, is simply a confession. You can confess because you're convicted, but without repentance, there is no restoration. And so we see here in the text, he finally acknowledges, yes, I have done that. And he begins to list the things that are there. He knows them by memory. But notice the progression. He says, I saw them. He looked at them with a desire, the same desire that Eve had. Coveted. You know, the Bible says that Eve saw, it and saw that it looked like it was good to eat. Desire welled up. And he wanted it. And he coveted. Why is it covetousness? Because it didn't belong to him. It belonged to God. And he, he coveted what didn't belong to him. It belonged to God. And he took it, he said. I took it. And what did he do? He hid it. Concealed his sin. He admitted that he had done that. But you never see a, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I repent, none of that. And notice what happens in Joshua sent messengers. They ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in the tent in the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. There's an affirmation of guilt here. And this affirmation is that Joshua sends investigators to investigate whether or not it was exactly as they were told. And sure enough, as they dig in the tent of, of, uh, of Achan's tent there, they find exactly the things that are missing that he said that he took. And they bring them and they lay them at the feet of not only Joshua but for all the people and it's exposed you can't hide anymore God's known it all along and the guilt that he's lived with this whole time has been eating him up but it wasn't enough guilt to repent and this conviction then leads to a conclusion of self and let me tell you this whenever self wins there's always this conclusion Self never wins. When we listen and yield to self, it always results in the same conclusion every stinking time. The problem is that the devil likes to whisper little lies in our ears. Say, if you give in to that, it'll be yours and you can enjoy it. No, you won't. You won't enjoy it. You won't enjoy it. You won't prosper. 
If you take what belongs to God and use it for your own selfish tendencies and needs and wants and, and all of those things, you won't enjoy it, you won't prosper, you won't, you won't, you won't. It's the same conclusion every time. Notice the conclusion. And Joshua and all of Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver of the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen, and the donkeys, and the sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, what did you bring trouble on us? Why did you bring trouble on us? And the Lord brings trouble now on you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stone with them, with, uh, with them stones. Stoned them with stones. It's interesting here that the result of sin, that Joshua becomes the judge. He sits in the court of law, and court is taking place, and he presides as the judge. The jury that's there is the jury of his own peers. The nation of Israel is his jury. They eventually become the executioners of the sentence. And they pronounce their verdict on Achan. You are guilty. The reason why our nation is in defeat is because of your sin. You have taken the devoted things that belong to God. Notice the justification for what they are about to do. They then render the sentence. They render the verdict. And they tell Joshua, this is the reason why you're about to suffer the consequences for what you have done. And they then execute the judgment. They stone him and all of his family. And they burn all of his things. And his family and his clan are wiped off the face of the earth and are not a part of the promise of God. So I ask you, is it worthwhile taking what belongs to God and using it for ourselves? Well, wait a minute, we're the God of the New Testament. Yeah, there is mercy and there is grace. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sin, and he will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's true. But confession without repentance leads to consequences. And you cannot confess and not repent. And the only way we can repent is to return back to God what is rightfully God's and give it to him. Have we taken the devoted things that belong to him and spent them on our own selfish needs? How about your time? The Bible says there's appointed once a time for a man to die. The time that you have on this earth has been given to you by God. It's a living trust. And if you take that time and use it only on yourself and don't use it for him, you're a thief. You have a talent, if you take that talent and spend it only on yourself and your own selfish needs for your own advancement and not for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom, you're a thief. You've robbed God. If you take all of the income that God has given you and don't give to him a portion that he requires, you're a thief and you've robbed God of what is rightfully his. Well, wait a minute, I'm one of God's elect, I'm one of his chosen, I'm one of his people. God will not smile on your sin. Your judgment must begin in the house of God. And God is a just God. You don't hear that very much in the consumer church today, do you? 
worship. Is it his? Or do we claim it as our own? We come to this place of worship and we make it about us. We rob God. Or the worship that we offer to God is not about us. It's all about him. At least what happened to Achan happened to us. We cannot advance. We cannot make progress. We cannot continue to inherit and to receive from the beautiful promises of God. If all that we have and all that we are is not dedicated, devoted to Him. But the reality is that all that we have and all that we are and all that we hope to be is His anyway. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas, and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Each Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 10 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship service and a casual and relaxed setting. Our second worship service begins at 11 a.m is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for adults and children of all ages are offered at 9.45 a.m. and 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.ibcwichita.com. That's www.ibcwichita.com. Another way we get to worship this morning is by the observance of baptism. If you're here this morning and you're part of Andrea's family, her life group, and are here to support her this morning, would you all just stand so that uh, we could recognize you as well? I know there are several here this morning. This is my friend Andrea. And Andrea happened to come to Emmanuel because her cousin sent her a Facebook invitation. And out of that invitation several months ago, Andrea has been coming and uh, has been learning what it means to be a follower of Christ. And this past week, God drew her and spoke to her and revealed to her her need for a relationship with him. And she prayed and asked Jesus to come into her heart to be her savior and her boss. And this morning, comes and wants to be identified, wants to be marked as a believer of Jesus. Andrea, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? And is it your desire for everyone to know that you are now his follower? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege this morning to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk.